Hey everyone, welcome to DarkCast Interviews. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. DCI is a long-form interview podcast where we talk to game creators about who they are and their work behind the scenes, as well as, obviously, their recent or upcoming video games. Usually. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Chris Ferguson from Stetson University about his research on the possible link between violent behavior and playing video games. You can find links to his most recently published article about this topic uh, below in the description if you're on YouTube or in the show notes on darkstation.com. There you can also find the original Darkcast as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, follow us on Twitter at darkstation underscore com, find us on Facebook, check us out on YouTube, and email us at podcast at darkstation.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. to DarkCast Interviews, everybody. I'm Jonathan. Joining me today is Dr. Chris Ferguson. How are you doing? Doing really good. It's great to be on today. Glad to have you on the show. This is a little bit different from our normal thing, but I'm really excited about it. So for people that don't know, Chris, you, uh, you are a doctor, professor at Stetson University. Yep, that's correct. Uh, the, the home of the... Uh, you, said they were the Hatters. That's the, the yes. name of your, yeah, uh, the, all of your teams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very intimidating. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the uh, guy who sort of created the Stetson you know, hat is the guy who donated bucket loads of money back in the late 1800s to the university. And, uh, you know, as, as such things happen, got his name attached to the university. So we have ever since been known as the Hatters in honor of John B. Stetson. And so, of course, you're wearing a uh, a cowboy hat right now, obviously, right? Oh, That's... absolutely. <laughs> All the time. It was required as part of the job. <laughs> uh, I do think it would be kind of neat if um, when students graduate, they didn't have the normal cap and gown, but they actually had a cowboy hat. Uh, that, I mean, if you just want to throw that out there, like, I think that would be cool. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we, we, don't, we don't do that, probably because the, the traditional, like, mortarboard or whatever they call it is probably, like, 50 cents and an actual Stetson hat would probably be like $30 or something like that. So it's probably the, the limitation on that. But I, I feel uh, like the Stetson company could just donate those hats. You know, I mean, they, they probably make enough money. It'd be fine. They would it's, get some it's a big pro- that would be kind of cool. Yeah, actually. It's a I big like promotion. Yeah. Uh, it's basically <laughs> not free advertising. Right. Um, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, our classes aren't that big, so you know it wouldn't be. Uh, I don't know. We get like a, I don't know, less than a thousand people probably graduate every year, so uh, it, it would uh, not be tremendously costly. And if it got some news attention, that would be pretty cool. It Hope would be. they're listening. Yeah, pa- pass that up the chain, man. Let's, yeah. let's do this. <laughs> We're making uh, making broad changes here to Stetson yeah. University. Anyway, um, so you're in you're at Stetson University, which is in Florida, correct? That is correct. Yeah, okay. we're right outside of, we're actually between Orlando and Daytona. Okay, excellent. So I, I guess before we get into talking about the research that you've done, uh, I want to get to know you a little bit. Uh, kind of what's your background, both in teaching and kind of in games. We'll start, I guess, with the professional one, and then we'll talk a little bit more about games in a second. 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a clinical psychologist um, and um, licensed as a clinical psychologist. I graduated uh, back in 2004. God, it's amazing how time is passing uh, very quickly. But um, yeah, so my, my training is basically clinical and I actually had gotten interested initially, like a lot of you know, sort of psych majors do today, sort of like interesting, like serial killers and mass shooters and, you know, and this kind of like really dramatic, uh, we, we really get like two main groups of, of students or one of the people that are interested in all those kind of like really dark topics. And then, you know, that was kind of like my group. And then, uh, then you get the people that, you know, sort of are, you know, trying to find out why they have issues or the family have issues. And sort of like the self-diagnosis group is like the second group. So, uh, I really kind of belong to that first group that really wanted to, you know, I've seen Silence of the Lambs maybe one too many times and kind of wanted to figure out how to make a career out of that. Um, and so so I initially got involved in sort of like, you know, doing research on inmates and forensic populations. I did a lot of clinical work with forensic populations and and, uh, and that was really kind of my my push was more like violent crime. And I kind of accidentally stumbled into like the video game stuff. Um, right around the time of the Columbine massacre back in 1999, which is really kind of when people started like you know kind of linking violent video games to mass shootings and stuff, and you know there were some some claims that were made by a few scholars, kind of saying, well, the effects of violent video games or violent movies or television are similar in magnitude to smoking and lung cancer, and that, that really kind of struck me as being this really like, you, you know, if, if you're a smoker, you're going to die. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, die fast, you know, I mean, so and that's, you know, a really, really well established, you know, body of literature. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was kind of amazed to hear people kind of link this, you know, which seemed like a somewhat more peripheral topic about like violent media, kind of making it sound like it was as good as that. Um, and that's really what got me kind of curious. And, and I think that's kind of like, you know, where I've done research in different areas uh, that's kind of like the common thread. Is that there's probably a character flaw, but like the more people tell me something is absolutely true, the less I actually believe it in a way, and and, and the more curious I get to kind of look at the evidence or the data uh, to see if the actual you know empirical evidence can back up the types of claims that people are uh, are are making. I, and I tend to find there is this kind of inverse relationship between people's certainty about a particular thing being true and the actual data to support um, that that belief. At least within social science, uh, you know that seems to be a, a, a sort of a strange phenomenon. But uh, but that's how I got in, you know sort of involved in this particular area of study was. Really, if people had just been a little bit more moderate in their claims, I think I wouldn't have gotten that interested. But, uh, but that was kind of my curiosity uh, initially. So I really meant to be studying more like the mass killers and, and serial killers, and I ended up kind of getting diverted into this video game stuff without there really being a lot of intent exactly. But uh, yeah, that sometimes is the way things work out, I guess. You know, with, with social science, I mean, there's usually a count. You know, for almost anything. You know, there's almost always some contradictory evidence, you know, um, and, and maybe that's not the best pool of evidence. But, you know, if, if someone doesn't even bother to tell me that it exists and why maybe it's, you know, not sufficient to challenge their views, then I start to feel a little bit lied to in a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, at least tell me that, you know, there's some debate or there's some inconsistency uh, if there is such a thing. Uh, don't tell me all the evidence is absolutely true for for a belief. You know, I'd rather hear the reasoned argument, you know, and, and, and when people don't have that reasoned argument, then I start to worry more. Um, and in mo at least in most situations, I tend to find that 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 concern ends up being accurate, that, that in fact, 
you know, in, in the social sciences, we're oftentimes being sold kind of a bill of goods uh, rather than a real objective, neutral portrayal of contrasting bodies of evidence for or against a particular belief. Yeah, no, the, having doubt in something, I think, is actually a really powerful thing. People like to cover it up and make everything sound certain mm-hmm. for it to be easier to believe. But whenever, like, doubt is introduced into something, I, I feel like that makes it more easy to believe because we don't we really don't know anything for certain. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know... It, it, it all really comes down to data and oftentimes, you know, data is messy, you know, and maybe doesn't always tell us the pretty story that we, we uh, want to hear. But I think that makes it, you know, really, really fascinating at the same point. But, Mm -hmm. but I think like most people are, you know, uncomfortable maybe with sort of nuances in, 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 in data. They, you know, kind of look at like going back to like the violent video game issue and mass shootings. They really want to know, do violent video games cause mass shootings? Yes or no. And, uh, and, and, you know, and you can even find these like weird generational things where it's not even that they want to hear, do video games cause mass shootings? Yes or no. They want to hear, do video games cause mass shootings? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, specifically, uh, particularly if they tend to be, you know, older adults. Um, so kind of coming at things and saying like, there are these different pools of evidence that, uh, you know, most of the studies don't really look at mass shootings. They look at like like putting hot sauce in people's sandwiches, you know, and stuff that, uh, uh, that, you know, it, it kind of makes people uncomfortable. They really just want to hear, you know, should we ban these things or shouldn't we? Um, or, or maybe, like I said, they already have their mind made up. They just want the evidence to support that, you know, pre-existing belief. And that, that makes things kind of, kind of tricky. You know, the evidence exists, you know, uh, out there and the evidence is important, but it also oftentimes is messy. And uh, there seems to oftentimes be an effort to kind of clean up that evidence to make it seem less messy than it actually is, um, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So did um, you mention that the the kind of the sure nature of people saying, you know, violent video games is causing this violent behavior made you want to look into it? Uh, Did you have a relationship with video games before that? Did you kind of, you know, want to come to the defense of video games at all or how how did that work yeah i mean so sure i mean i, I grew up in the atari 2600 generation um you know so I'm, I'm 48 years old so i'll just throw that out there now so people kind of know uh where i'm at generationally but yeah so I, I grew up really when video games first started becoming really commercially viable you know so like the cabinet games and arcades were popular and then, uh, yeah, the Atari 2600 was like a miracle sent by God, you know, that uh, it, it was it was amazing, you know, and uh, I'm sure I burned some absurd number of hours on uh, playing video games on the uh, you know Atari 2600. And I, and I think kind of like, you know, my relationship with games kind of followed the sort of historical narrative and that like after the. Atari 2600, there was this kind of like lull in sales of video games. There's a crash. Um, and I was right about when I was a teenager. So I think at that point I got more interested in trying to, you know, uh, you know, chase after girls, usually unsuccessfully. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the interest was there. And, I, and then it was really more like in my 20s that I started getting back into gaming, you know, mostly through PC gaming um, at that time period, a lot of like RPGs. Um, and strategy games like Civilization and, 
And I really didn't do console games much until I think I started getting involved in researching the the literature, and I, all the attention was on like Grand Theft Auto and Call of Duty, and a lot of these like really heavy. I mean, you can play this on the PC too, but yeah, they really were kind of these like console heavy games. And so I started, you know, getting more interested in in uh, in you know, I figured I needed to play them if I was going to talk about them, um, you know, publicly. And I actually kind of like, uh, you know, I like a lot of those games now. Um, and so I play probably more on the consoles today, um, than I ever did uh, back in like the, you know, the, the nineties or early two thousands when I was mostly a PC gamer. So, uh, so I, so I do, I do play games. I'm probably about average, uh, for a person of uh, my age category. I like to play them. Uh, but of course it's always a, a trick trying to find time to fit them in with, you know, family and work and, you know, all the other kind of stuff that's, uh, you know, going on. So I probably play more during the summer. When I have a little bit more free time and, and a little bit less during the school year, when I have a little bit less uh, free time, unfortunately. I, the, the, the sad thing I sometimes say is that like writing about and researching games, unfortunately, sometimes takes a lot of time away from my being able to play them, <laughs> uh, which is a uh, you know a little bit sad, I guess, uh, somewhat. I, th- I think that's the problem with doing any sort of work with video games. You imagine yeah. <laughs> that you know if you're going to review them, you just get to play video games all day long, but yeah. writing like takes up so much time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or the yeah. people that you know want to make video games, like all I hear all the time is like, yeah, I, I basically get to play games like once I've finished the game, and yep. I take a little bit of a break, and then it's back to the grind of of uh, making things. So right, actually right. playing them just kind of goes out the window. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's too bad. That's sad in a way, but you know, I guess it is the way it is. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, do your kids play video games at all, or do you play video games with your kids? Yeah, so I, I have a 16 year old son, um, and uh, I'm, try, I'm trying to think like when he discovered video games. But he was he was big into Minecraft for many years. Uh, that was his game of choice, if you will, like ongoing for uh, you know I don't know how, how long it was. It seemed like it was forever, um, and. Um, and then we we played a lot of the Lego games uh, together um, as well. So that was really kind of like the biggest part of our game, you know, his gaming and our shared gaming up until he hit about like 14 or so. And at that point, he started discovering more of like the, the shooter games, like the Call of Duties and and uh, and that sort of stuff. So but we still try to play, you know, like we played Battlefront uh, together uh, when that game came out uh, a little bit. And then uh, we actually he, his birthday just passed this past weekend. And so I got him the one of the newer Lego games. So we're, we're we're just starting on uh, you know yet another Lego game together. Oh, nice. uh, yeah, so we we try to uh, you know still you know play together even though some of our interests have diverged. And he he goes through games a bit more rapidly than I do because I tend to latch on to these like 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 right now I'm playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which I'll probably be playing for the next seven years. Yeah, you will. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's like massive game. And so and so he's like, I tried this game and I liked it. And I tried this game and I liked it. I was like, you know, so when are you going to play them? He's, yeah, because. He he likes to play them and then have me play them and then we kind of like compare notes, mm-hmm. you know. You know if they're a single person game, um, and uh, so I'm starting to acquire this like backlog of games that he has played but I have not, <laughs> and uh, you know. <laughs> so at some point I'll have to like play through all these games so we can start to compare notes about whether they were good or not. Uh, that's that's pretty funny. Yeah, Assassin's Creed Odyssey is is utterly massive. I. Um... Mm-hmm. I'm still surprised I actually made it to the credits. I, I, oh, okay, I have not. Yeah, I'm, I'm that level. I don't know, like 49 or something uh, like that. Point. Yeah, yeah so, I, I think I, that's about what level I am. But uh, I I stopped <laughs> doing a lot of the side quests like 30 oh, hours okay. in, and I was just like, I just I have to get to the end. And then it still yeah. took like 40 more hours to beat it. It was <laughs> so big. It's it's yeah. insane. Yeah. 
That's uh, what I did with uh, Red Dead Redemption too. For for uh, for same thing. It's eventually like, oh my god, I've just been doing this for months. I need to like just get through the storyline and finish it, you know, and ignore all these other people. Screw them. Uh, that and, game exhausted uh, me. I never finished it. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever go back to it. It's it's. I really appreciate what it does, but yeah. I just. Oh man, it just thinking about that game makes me tired. I don't. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> yeah. It, it 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 did become like you know this is like like a life goal in a way like you know I just have to you know it's like I'm an irresponsible human being if I haven't finished Red Dead Redemption two, and that became kind of like the motivation just to get through the storyline. The the thing about Assassin's Creed is I I like ancient Greece just as a historical like time period, so I think I'm a little bit more like oh yeah yeah I, I could kind of hang out in this world for a long time because it's just so cool sure. um, yeah. historically. So I've done a lot more of the like you know some of them are irritating you just like walk up to some person and they're like yeah i want you to go kill a bear for me um it's like ah uh, you know uh, it's kind of a waste of time but you know whatever now now i activated the quest so what can, what can you do but um so I, i'm sort of trying to keep away from some of those really like kind of basic quests uh but but there's still a lot of really good story oriented quests that aren't part of the main storyline but are still pretty cool so i think i'm still diverting myself a little bit with some of those Random side note about Assassin's Creed. Have you found the one that's based on uh, Oedipus? I have not found the Oedipus one. No, I mean, I, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know how much uh, we want to you know, do spoilers for it, but uh, you know, I, I found the Minotaur, I found the Cyclops. Okay. I haven't found the Oedipus one yet. No, so so. Uh, so there's the, um, there's the big monsters that you know, are kind of based on um, yeah. you know, the mythological monsters and stuff like that, and you fight them. But there's one, it's a tiny side quest, it's uh, like all of the the things that you have to do take place in a very small area. I okay. don't remember where on the map it takes place. Yeah. Uh, but you find this guy, and I guess the uh, the spoiler of it is his name is actually Oedipus backwards. It's like Stadio uh, or whatever. Okay, gotcha. And so it basically plays out like this mini version of the you know the <laughs> Oedipus uh, story, and it's it's really interesting. Um, and cool. it's really funny too because it plays it kind of as a joke, and yeah. so it's it. That was one of the first side quests that I found where I was like, "Oh, this this game gets what it's doing. This is this is wonderful." Right, right, right. Um, well, I, I was like, just even just the historical elements too. I mean, so so many of the characters, even in the main storyline, are like actual people from the Pel you know Peloponnesian War. Yeah, um, and that's pretty uh, pretty neat to say. Like, oh, I, I recognize this character. You know, I mm -hmm. recognize him. You know, from some of the histories and stuff. Uh, yeah, that's pretty neat about it as well. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to take you on a total, total tangent about. Oh, assassin. that's hey, that is what this <laughs> podcast is all about: tangents, tangents, tangents. Yeah. Uh, we should probably rename it to just tangents. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, also, I did want to go back. I know this would be completely anecdotal, and it's not research at all. But when your son started playing video games, did you notice any difference in behavior, or were you? Did you have any fears about any of that stuff that we're about to talk talk about um, as far as violence or just misbehaving or anything like that? Um, was yeah, that it's a, yeah, it's a good question. You had to deal with? No, yeah, no, he, our son's a pretty mellow kid, um, you know, uh, for the most part. So, uh, I mean, he's, he's a teenager now and, you know, uh, you know, sometimes can be a little sullen like teenagers can be, but, you know, less, I would say, than your typical teenager um, in, uh, you know, most situations. So we still all get along, you know, really, really well. And uh, he's, you know, 
uh, not a behavior problem or anything of that sort. So no, things are, uh, you know, things are good. But like, like I said, of course, that's an anecdote and, you know, um, you know, one way or another doesn't necessarily, um, prove anything. So it's always important to look more at like the, you know, the actual empirical data to, you know, to answer those types of questions. But no, I, d definitely, you know, worrying about like exposure to, um, you know, video games or movies or television wasn't really at the top of our agenda. Um, you know, for the most part, you know, we just want to make sure you had a you know good family home and, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's funny, like you kind of think about like, cause you know, our, our son will, will talk to us about like his experiences in middle school and high, now he's in high school, of course. And, uh, you know, you hear about like all the things that, uh, he gets exposed to just in his, among his peers and you go like, oh my God, like no video game could compete with this. Uh, <laughs> anyway, in terms of just like the, you know, the crassness and like the, you know, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's kind of funny when, uh. You know, he was younger and he would see things that were like drawn on like the bathroom stalls. And, you know, and I won't I won't describe anything for a mixed audience. But, you know, I mean, and you say, like, I saw this thing. And then, like, you know, in his younger mind, he misinterprets what that thing is. Uh, you know, and of course, you know, my wife and I are trying not to kind of giggle um, a little bit because we know exactly what someone had written on the <laughs> or drawn, you know, on the on the. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something, you know, probably something that parents have to keep in mind is, is you know, if you send your kids to school, um, then they're going to be exposed to so much stuff anyway that, you know, video games or television or movies are just a drop in the bucket, you know, compared to what they're going to see. And, you know, of course, you could homeschool your kids and that's very different. But, you know, certainly uh, at least that was kind of anecdotally our experience was like, oh, my God, I think the stuff he hears and sees just among his other peers is so terrible that, uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto can't even hold a candle to, you know, uh, you know, some of this stuff. But, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So let, let's get into the research that, that you've been working on. Um, I guess in a, a short summary, kind of what, what have you been focusing on? Uh, we'll get into the results in a little bit, but like, what have you actually been looking at and researching? Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff that we're, we're doing right now, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, we still do some experiments and we just wrapped up an experiment using some VR technology just to look to see if that, you know, was any different from experiments with sort of like regular non-VR games um, in terms of outcomes. But, you know, of course, the thing about like the experiments is we're all limited in terms of like the aggression that we can use in, in, in experiments. We can't have people like beat each other up in the lab um, and such. So, you know, the, the, the aggression measures tend to be things like, you know, like I said, like, you know, putting you know, hot sauce into someone's sandwich if you think they don't like spicy food or putting someone's bucket in a hand of ice water. They're kind of interesting, but, you know, they're obviously not what people are worried about in the general public. You know, we're not worried about, like, the gangs of Chicago worrying, you know, running around with buckets of ice water, sticking each other's hands in them and that kind of stuff, you know. So, um, you know, I, I think somewhat more interesting of late are these kind of, you know, long-term outcome studies. You call them longitudinal studies where we kind of, like, follow kids um, over time and they have certain limitations. I mean, they usually are self-report, survey-based kinds of stuff. So, of course, there are always some weaknesses that come with that kind of data. But, but nonetheless, they're kind of interesting because you can look at, like, you know, the kids' report or their parents' report about, like, the games they play and their mental health and their family environment and just kind of track them over time and see, you know, essentially who gets into trouble or who engages in troublesome behavior and look to see what things, you know, seem to predict that. And um, and try to find out whether, you know, playing action oriented video games uh, is is one of the predictors, um, you know, or not. I mean, we all know that 
you know, violence is multi-determined, you know, no one thing causes people to engage in assaults or bullying or, or outcomes like that. But, you know, on the other hand, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't mean that all have won and must have prizes either, you know, that, you know, some things do, you know, predict these outcomes, some things don't. So the, the question becomes is which, which of these things are actual risk factors, you know, and, and is video games one of those risk factors, um, you know, and can we show this in a reliable way in these kind of long-term, you know, outcome studies? Because that's really kind of the argument people say is, well, well, maybe you know, the effects of video games in the short term are pretty minimal. And that's kind of what the experiment suggests is that you really don't see a lot of like really clear short-term effects. And so, but on the other hand, maybe effects kind of accumulate, you know, over time. And if, if that's the case, then we should be able to see that in these longitudinal studies that, effects should get larger the longer apart, you know, you look at, you know, so if people play video games consistently over four years, you know, then the effects should be larger than, you know, over two years, you know, if the sort of accumulation hypothesis is in fact uh, correct. So I think that's kind of right now the really interesting body of literature um, that people seem, you know, certainly we're working on at Stetson and other people seem to be interested in as well. So um, the traditional studies that have been going on, how long have they actually been studying uh, people for and how long have you been studying them, like in terms of each test? Yeah. About the, the longitudinal stuff, like what, what does that actual time span look like? Well, I mean, I think uh, – well, I might have just misunderstood what you asked. I, I think you were asking, like, when did people start studying this? And that would probably be in like the early 80s. Well, that, maybe, that, that's good that. too. Like when, when yeah. did this start? And But also just like how long do these – uh, studies tend to go on for. Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, yeah, so people started started studying violence in video games way back in the 80s, you know, in the early 80s. And, you know, uh, and that was, you know, we're talking about games like, you know, Zaxxon or Centipede as violent video games, which, you know, most people today find kind of laughable when rightly so. But, uh, but people took seriously back then, as, you know, as this idea that these were, you know, you know, violence and you're just shooting stuff, right? You know, uh, so that was good enough for people back then. Um, you know, and, you know, back then I was like 12, so I wasn't involved, you know, in that particular really <laughs> batch of, uh, you know, uh, research, but, uh, yeah, so the, the research has been going on for like four decades, um, you know, at this point, uh, the longitudinal studies are more recent and they really only started seeing those pop up in the late two thousands. And, uh, the time period that, you know, these people are looking at in these different longitudinal studies. I mean, you have some that are like actually kind of like experiments where you have people play for long periods and that might, those are usually pretty short though. So you may have people play games for like three weeks or six weeks or something like that and see what happens to them. So it's technically longitudinal because you're following them over time, but they're still pretty short because uh, it's only three weeks or six weeks. And the, and the longest ones are probably like around seven or so years, seven or eight years um, where there have been a couple that have looked at like eight-year-olds and followed them to they were 15 uh, or something of that sort. So those are probably the longest ones um, that we're seeing, um, you know, right now. And and those are also the ones that tend to have the, the youngest participants. So we do have some that are, you know, around uh, eight years old uh, and looking at whether they played shooter games when they're eight years old and kind of following them until they're 15 and seeing whether they're playing of shooter games predicts, you know, bullying or violent assaults or, or all other kinds of outcomes and such. But the, probably the majority of them are like one or two years, though, probably, like, you know, one to two years for a longitudinal study is is pretty typical um, with a small number that get out a little further. Like I said, probably the maximum being about 
seven or eight years. Okay. So how how do you actually measure aggression in somebody? You mentioned that you know most people think of like you know you want to be able to test how people are actually aggressive in real society, but you mm-hmm. were mentioning like hot sauce and sticking people's hands in water. Like, how do yeah. you actually test somebody's aggression? Yeah, so I mean, that's the limitation of the experimental studies, right? It's because we can't like leave a bunch of knives and guns laying around in the lab and see what happens, right? You know, um, you know, so we, we have to kind of, you know, use these very, very mild uh, forms of aggression, but they have a lot of, you know, they're, they're interesting. I don't want to like throw out the baby with the bathwater here. So they, they are interesting, but, but of course they have many limitations in that, you know, they don't really predict, you know, serious assaults in real life very well. Uh, they're also kind of sanctioned by the researcher, right? You're kind of, uh, you know, by, by giving people the opportunity to engage in these behaviors, you're kind of telling them that it's okay, you know? Uh, and that's a little bit different from the sorts of things we worry about in the real world where, you know, we, we're worrying about criminal aggression, right? Where society is telling people these things aren't okay, you know? So basically, can you kind of generalize from one group um, to another? Now, now, with these longitudinal studies, we're not so constrained. Uh, because they tend to be survey based, you know, so we're not actually having people engage. And uh, I mean, some of the experiments, those three to six week experiments, maybe. But, you know, for most of these things, we're not really having people engage in actual aggressive behaviors in front of us. But rather, um, we're asking them or their parents uh, about their aggressiveness. Um, in some cases, we may, you know, try to get you know arrest records or something of like that. So although those are pretty rare. Um, studies that involve that. Um, we may look at clinical diagnoses like uh, conduct disorder um, in teenagers. And, uh, you know, th- these, of course, have limitations, too. I mean, the, the one, the good side is you can ask people anything. You know, the people, you, you know, you can ask them if they've murdered somebody, you know, and there's nothing necessarily unethical about doing that, whereas you can't have people murder each other in the lab. So you can get a wider range of, beha- yeah, <laughs> you can get a wider range of behaviors that you can uh, you can look at. Um, but of course they, they are survey based. So people don't always give very honest, you know, responses, particularly if you're asking people about, you know, crimes they've committed, um, or, or things like that. So to some extent you're, you're sort of, you're sort of trusting people to give you honest answers, even though we know that they don't, they don't always give us, uh, honest answers. And there are other kinds of issues that can pop up, like, if people can guess the hypothesis of the study, they may give very different answers than if they're left in the dark. So if you ask people like, you know, what violent video games did you play? And oh, by the way, how aggressive are you? People can oftentimes put that together and that will change their responses. And it usually changes their responses in the direction of kind of linking them together. You know, so if people kind of can guess that you're trying to say video games cause aggression, people will tend to give you the answers they think you want. Um, and that can cause spurious correlations that, you know, don't really reflect what's going on, uh, in the real world. And so, and the other issue is some people will lie by giving extreme answers on purpose, you know, and there, again, if you ask people about crimes, like, have you ever murdered people? You get like 10% of people will say yes to that. Um, whereas in reality, nowhere near 10% of people have actually murdered anybody. You know what I mean? And, and they do it because they think it's funny. You know, so you have to kind of like weed out these kind of we call mischievous responders, um, you know, and stuff, uh, because otherwise, again, if you're asking people about two sets of very extreme behaviors, like how many crazy ass video games have you played? And by the way, have you murdered anybody? You're going to get like 10 percent of your respondents that are going to put yes to both of those things, even though one or both of those answers are, are lies. And they, they do it because they think it's funny. Um, so you have to kind of find some way of getting rid of those responses in order to get a more valid measurement of what is actually going on. 
um, you know, with these kids. How do you remove that kind of stuff? Do you just look at the the normal pool of people and say, okay, we're going to pull out this percentage of these answers because it doesn't reflect reality or how, how do you actually get rid of those outliers? Well, you can, you can try to test for mischievous responding in, in, in a couple of different ways. And I mean, one, you get unreliable responding where people are just, the, the term we use is Christmas training, which basically just means they're sort of randomly filling in surveys. But so you can test by that with just wait, you know, you know please mark this answer as mostly true, you know, something like that, you know, and see if they actually follow the, the, the directions. So that's one easy way of getting rid of unreliable responders. With, with mischievous responders, you just give them other, you know, crazy questions to respond to. So, you know, I have once owned a three-headed dog, um, something like that. And anybody that puts true <laughs> to that, you, you just get rid of their response. Gotcha. Uh, because, you know, if they're lying on that one, they might be lying on a bunch of other stuff as well. So, so you, you can put in a bunch of different question items that are like that, that okay. you know, j just can't be true. And uh, see if you get these like whimsical people who think it would be funny, you know, to answer true to some of these like crazy ass questions. And uh, and anybody that does so, you can guarantee is probably going to put yes to being a murderer um, as well, uh, beca not because they actually are, but because they think it's funny. Um, so those are at least and again, you know, no system is going to be perfect. Uh, you may get some people who are clever enough to find those, you know, uh, and still give you bad responses. But uh, it's a way of trying to make sure that the, the the most unreliable responders aren't included in the in the data. And, and unfortunately, some, you know, well, fortunately, some studies do this and others don't. Uh, you know, so it's always kind of a question that we ought to be asking with any kind of survey. Uh, outcome is, is there a possibility that some of these responders are just being extreme to be funny? And is, and how is that influencing you know, some of the results in some of these surveys? That makes sense. Now, um, I'll have a link to it in the show notes for the episode, but the, the findings on your research were uh, recently published in Springer's Psychiatric Quarterly, correct? Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. In that, you uh, mentioned that you surveyed both the the people that are being tested and like their friends and family. Is that right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, so how, how do people's answers usually differ between uh, kind of self-reporting and people reporting on, or, or I guess answering questionnaires or whatever, self-reporting and reporting on people sounds bad, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, it you know, feels like we're getting into that the kind of a society <laughs> sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, people talking about themselves versus talking about their friends or family, how do those answers usually differ or do they? They do. Uh, and that is sort of an important point. You get something, and again, I'm using sometimes some inside baseball terms here, and just, you know, bear with me a bit, but uh, there, there's a term that's called single responder bias, essentially, which means if you if you have like a – relationship you're testing, like say video games and aggression, if you get the predictor response, which would be video games, and the outcome response, which would be aggression, from the same source, uh, that's a single responder, they tend to be more highly correlated, uh, which again might be because the person was able to guess the hypothesis, you know, just asking the two sets of questions kind of changed their answers a little bit to make them sort of gravitate towards each other. So when you have multiple responders, you tend to get um, weaker evidence for relationships. So let's, for, for instance, say we take a bunch of families and we ask the kids, you know, did you play 
you usually don't want to ask the kids, did you play violent video games? You usually want to ask them, what video games did you play? You know, uh, and then you can use something like the ESRB ratings to, you know, get a, a, an estimate of how much violent content was in them. But it's so, you know, you can ask the kids, you know, you know, list your top three favorite video games or however you want to do it. Here's a bunch of video games. Check off the ones that you've played. Um, so you get like the video game ratings from the kids because uh, the parents oftentimes won't even know what they played. Um, but then you can ask the parents, like, you know, how many behavioral problems do you see in your kids? You know, you know, uh, how aggressive are they behaving in the family? You know, that kind of stuff. So you can get the aggression outcome from the parents because they're usually a pretty, you know, reliable or sometimes from the teacher. You know, you can get a pretty reliable source of information there. Uh, and that avoids this issue of single responder bias. And so when you get uh, responses from two sources, um, you're much less likely to find these kind of spurious correlations, you know, caused by single responder bias, which means that if you still see a correlation, um, you can be more confident that that correlation is real than if you had gotten both sets of data from a single responder, if that, if that makes any kind of sense. I think so. I think so. One thing that I noticed was that, um, it, it seemed like, people often reported themselves as being less aggressive, whether at the beginning of the study or at the end, than mm -hmm. uh, the people that were answering questions for those people. It was, it was a very small amount. I'm trying to find where it was in the, the article right now. Uh, it, was, it was like, you know, 0 .05 points or something like that. But it was just like, just a little, I, I don't know. I think people just, I guess, have a picture of themselves as being <laughs> more docile than maybe they really are. And I just I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. We you get all kinds of like um, you know if you look at like different pools of responders, or even there even is research in terms of like who tends to you know have higher estimates of problems, and uh, you do tend to find this kind of like you know positive image management, if you will, which is you know a lot of people don't want to admit you know faults uh, for themselves, which is which is human nature. I mean that's just kind of the way you know it is. And then but it's funny if you look at like parents, you you tend to find that mothers tend to report more problems than dads do, um, which is also kind of interesting. You know dads tend to be either more dismissive or more deny. I don't. Know, I'm, I'm, I'm making it sound negative as if the dads are wrong. And it's, it's not necessarily that the dads are wrong or right. It's just that you know mothers tend to worry more about the problem behaviors in their kids than dads do. Um, who's right or who's wrong is a, is a very different you know sort of question, but but you do see this kind of like gender differences also in reporting of problems, and 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 then oftentimes you know teachers will report higher levels of problems than the parents do, uh, at least in some cases. You know when there are problems, they tend to rate them more highly uh, than the parents do uh, sometimes as well. So you make it this kind of like general defensiveness you know within families and individuals and and. Uh, you know, uh, teachers are maybe less defensive on one hand, but on the other hand, you might spin it and say, well, maybe teachers are just, you know, quicker to judge too, you know? So, it's, and I'm just trying to make sure I'm not putting it, you know, as if saying one group is right or one group is wrong, just that you see the different sets of biases in all these groups that cause them to, you know, result in different estimates of, uh, of, uh, of behavior. So it, it can be kind of tricky, uh, sometimes to really know exactly. And then of course, clinicians are a different set of of, uh, of individuals, you know, to, uh, to work with as, as well. And, in, you know, some of these studies that we've done, we had, we did have like, you know, clinical ratings of like conduct disorder and things like that. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you, def you definitely see these kinds of, of shifts in level of observed problems, depending upon which group of individuals you're, uh, you're asking for responses from. Interesting. Also, I kind of wonder if there's any relationship to just how much time, a parent or a, a teacher, you know, an adult in a, a child's life spends with the child uh, to how much 
they report. Like if it's if mothers that work report less than dads that stay at home, uh, yes. or dads that work, you know, versus mothers that stay at home, or or if both parents work, how that kind of varies. If it more evens out, or if it just seems to be a, a gender thing or something like that. I would. I don't know that, that. I feel like that's probably a whole other test that you would need to do yeah. <laughs> to, to look just at that. Um, it's, pro- it's probably all of that. I mean, you know, it's probably a lot of different factors are going to intrude. And even like the contextualization. I mean, you know, probably parents can contextualize their kids, you know, issues more than say teachers can. You know, teachers only see the the problem, right? Yeah, this kid is irritating me because I can't manage my class because he's you know, you know jumping on the tables, whatever. But you know, the parents may be able to more contextualize that. Well, yeah, he's doing that because he's being bullied. He says he's being bullied by his, you know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, you know people will interpret the same behavior in, in different ways sure. um, and contextualize it, um, you know, different um, as well. And that's why it's good to get multiple, you know, certainly when we do like clinical assessments, you know, uh, if I were to be doing an assessment on a child and trying to figure out, for instance, does that child have something like oppositional defiant disorder or ADD? You know, the, the goal is to try to get you know, the kid, the parents, both parents and the teachers to all give input and uh, and see where do they correspond with each other and where do they diverge. Um, and that's all valuable information for a clinical assessment. Of course, we can't really it's, it's you know, that's uh, it's difficult to manage data in that way um, for a research study. So we don't usually tend to get those kinds of nuances, unfortunately. Um, in the uh, the actual research data, but uh, but but it, but it does sort of highlight why it's important to try to get as many sources of information um, as, as as possible. Sure, sure. Uh, I guess um, three more things that I kind of want to know about the the research. One, um, it seems to sound like there's a. It's hard to identify a link between aggressive behavior and violence in video game or well I guess violence in video games causing aggressive behavior but there might be some sort of correlation that if you're already aggressive then you might lean more towards violent video games is that that's what, am I that's reading what that's that correctly cer- yeah that certainly is what some of the research uh, has has showed I mean in some of the studies we've done more recently um, we don't really find you know, at least in our studies, we don't find much evidence one way or the other, you know, and that may just because playing action oriented games has become so ubiquitous um, sure. that it just doesn't really, you know, generalize between groups of individuals. But but there certainly have been other studies and off the top of my head, I can think there's a German group, uh, you know, Brewer and colleagues back in 2015. They found exactly what you're suggesting that, you know, playing action oriented games didn't seem to predict later uh, aggression, but but earlier aggression did predict later attraction towards you know more action oriented more violent um you know video games uh so there, there is some evidence for you know what you said you know is that we call it a selection effect that okay. more aggressive individuals may be inclined to seek out uh, more violent video games I and mean, certainly we, we we do know like boys for instance play more violent video games than girls do even though you know girls are increasingly becoming a big part of the video game market uh girls and women um Nonetheless, when you look at like the you know triple A you know M rated you know types of games, uh, they still tend to be um, more popular with boys and men than they are with girls and um, and, and and women. Um, so there, there definitely is you know that sort of gender based selection effect, and there is at least some evidence, although it's not seen in every study, that more aggressive individuals may be drawn to you know more violent video games for sure. Uh, the next thing I wanted to ask about was uh, moral disengagement. 
what is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, in some ways it's kind of a fluffy term, uh, but it's it, – so basically the, the idea of moral disengagement is that uh, in some contexts people may uh, become less concerned about worrying about the moral connotations of uh, their, their actions. Um, you know, so basically moral engagement is, you know, saying if, if I do this, what are the conflict, what are the, you know, ramifications of this action for other people? And should I be concerned about that? You know, so if I, I don't know, yeah, taking a mild example, if I download music MP3s off the internet for free and I don't pay for them, you know, are there any moral issues I have to worry about? Does that make it more difficult for the, you know, artists uh, who are producing uh, music? And maybe we don't care about Metallica, but maybe we worry about the more struggling artists who every dollar, you know, makes a difference for these uh, individuals. Does it make it harder for these people to, you know, produce music? And am I contributing in a small way, perhaps, to some negative, you know, outcomes for the music industry? Uh, more generally, or do I not give a crap? You know, essentially. <laughs> so, so moral disengagement is is the other side. Of, well, I don't know if I really give a crap. You know, um, that you know maybe my actions do have some ramifications morally, um, you know, or even practically for other people. But eh, you know, uh, let them fend for themselves uh, a little bit. So it's basically sort of like the the tendency to not become engaged in these kind of moral reflections, not worrying so much morally about the consequences of what we're doing or what other people are doing uh, for that matter and becoming kind of rigidly pragmatic. I mean, I'm all for pragmatics, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, in this case, it's all about sort of like outcomes and, uh, and less concerned about whether doing something is right or wrong, which would be more like focusing on the morality of things. Hmm. Okay. So did you see any sort of correlation there? Well, I mean, you know, what we, we tend to find is that, you know, moral engagement is a, uh, you know, predictor of, of aggression to some extent, you know, although it's a relatively small one, um, you know, uh, and there's actually some, there's actually some controversy. Uh, the, the reason why I called it fluffy, there's a lot of like related concepts altogether. There's like empathy and, and uh, you know, that kind of stuff and pro-social behavior. All these kind of things like are circling in some sort of like a larger concept, uh, I think, to some degree. Um, but uh, there there is this kind of debate about whether things like empathy and moral engagement actually predict aggression or not. Um, you know, so there's, and there's been some back and forth uh, in the literature. It's not really my primary area of focus, so I haven't been involved in that, but I've, I've watched other people, you know, sort of argue back and forth about whether empathy and aggression really are or are not, um, you know, related to each other. I think most most people common sense would say that they should be, um, but there is some data to su suggest that, in fact, they're not, which is interesting. Um, you know, we'll see how all that sort of stuff, uh, you know, shakes out, but, uh, you know, but, you know, it looks like, you know, moral disengagement is a, is, is a small uh, predictor of, of aggression. Although again, you know, causally, we don't know what the causal direction of that necessarily, uh, is, but, uh, but once again, we don't tend to find across studies that, you know, playing action oriented games has any real relationship with moral disengagement or empathy, uh, or however we want to kind of think of, um, you know, of those things. And there actually have been a few studies that have suggested that playing, uh, sort of immoral games, if you will, like Grand Theft Auto, I guess you can kind of think of that as having some, you know, 
placing you in situations that are morally questionable at very least. Um, you know, there are some games that su- there are, or there are some studies that suggest that playing games like that actually cause people to reflect morally. Yeah, you end up like I'm thinking of like GTA Five, where there's that like kind of like torture scene that Trevor has to engage in. Um, and, uh, you know, like the, the idea is that a lot of people come out of that going like, wow, I mean, I just, you know, I just did these things, you know, and granted it was in a fictional universe, but how do I feel about that? I'm not sure I'm so comfortable, like even in a fictional universe, um, you know, having done that or, or I guess, or I guess like the, the no Russian level, you know, from mm-hmm. one of the early modern warfare's might be similar to that too. Like people kind of go through it and they do it and then they kind of come out of it going like, yeah, I don't know if they feel good. Um, you know, about having gone through that virtual experience. And so in some cases, uh, some of the evidence suggests that, you know, sort of playing immorally can actually cause people to reflect on morality in ways that it might actually be positive, you know, that it really kind of starts to get people thinking about uh, morality. So, but, but the bottom line is it really doesn't seem to be like, you know, people are kind of, you know, worried, you know, parents are worried and, and politicians are worried. I just playing these games cause like desensitization, people become less empathic. Uh, and the evidence doesn't really suggest that. We don't really see, you know, evidence that, you know, playing these types of games results in, you know, reduction of empathy towards others or, or less caring, um, you know, desensitization, uh, other than to the games themselves, maybe. Uh, it doesn't seem to jump into real life. So, we're, yeah, we're not really seeing anything that, you know, that kids today are less moral because they've been exposed to uh, video games than kids in previous generations. Interesting. Now, you've, you've mentioned a lot about action-oriented video games, and that is a, a huge selection of, the, I guess, the video game pie. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you said that you try to figure out how violent the video games that people are, are playing when they you know, are self-reporting and stuff like that. I guess, you know, action is such a huge umbrella. How, how many, like, really... And I guess, how do you classify violence in video games? I mean, you you could have like a teen game that doesn't have, you know, yeah. blood, and you know, it's it's almost just like a three D version of of going back to Centipede. Sure, you're yeah. you're shooting a thing, but it doesn't have the game's not giving you that kind of like visceral reaction. Whereas then you have a game like Doom twenty sixteen, where you're like punching through demons and blood is squirting everywhere, <laughs> and it's it's all the violence. Yeah. Um, how do you classify violence, and I guess what slice of the pie are those really violent video games? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and, and to be honest with you, this is a, an issue the whole field has sidestepped entirely. And you know, we use this term "violent video game" as if it means something, right? You know, in a way that, that conceptual ha- conceptually has some sort of validity to it, but. Um, you know, and I've done it myself, um, you know, more, more recently, I actually kind of did this like straw poll of, of, you know, scholars that I knew kind of thinking like, if, if we were to replace the term violent video game with something else, what would it be? Cause the, the whole, the, the term violent video game itself is so emotionally loaded, you know what I mean? That, you know, it's sort of like prime people for, to not like these things. Um, like why would you like violent video games? You know? Um, so, you know, basically kind of did this like little, very unscientific straw poll of, of People I knew trying to think of like, well, you know, I think I think I did on Twitter, you know, so it's totally unscientific, Uh, but basically kind of trying to say like, you know, what would be a replacement term for violent video games that was a less emotionally evocative 
And uh, in the short version, we really couldn't come up with anything <laughs> that satisfied everybody. We, you know, in, in you know the more recent articles, I've started using aggressive video game rather than violent video game, which is at least a little bit you know one step down in terms of being emotionally evocative, but but still is not you know by my own admission, by no means is it a perfect term or or beyond criticism. But but the, the thing is, is is the way in the field we define violent video game. You know, I referenced games like Saxon and Centipede earlier that. Uh, you know, basically any game in which any character engages in aggression towards another character is considered a violent video game, uh, which literally means that Centipede, Zaxxon, Pac-Man are violent video games, you know, by this definition. Um, and uh, and the way the theories work, uh, if you buy them, and I'm not saying you should buy them, but is that simply rehearsing these aggressive behaviors in these games is what causes you to have aggression in real life. So theoretically, if you play a lot of Pac-Man, that should result in the same negative outcomes in terms of aggression as playing a lot of Grand Theft Auto V. The graphicness doesn't really matter. It's simply the act of rehearsing the aggression uh, over and over again. Now, I, I think all this is nuts, but but that's technically the way that the you know the theory, um, you know, or the theories kind of work out basically. But but that, that results in this situation where you're lumping a lot of games into this category of uh, you know violent video game in a way that is to the outside world, kind of silly. You know, we tell you that technically Pac-Man's a violent video game. Most people kind of giggle and think you're, you know, think you're crazy. Uh, and, I, and I kind of agree, you know, um, you know uh, with that. Sort of like talking about, like, violent literature, you know, which would include, like, Stephen King, comic books, the Bible, um, Shakespeare, and everything else in between, and, and thinking that means something, you know, conceptually. Um, and we would probably never do that with books, but we do do it with, uh, you know, video games. Um, you know, I think that's kind of a problem. But again, the, like I said, the, there's not an obvious solution to that either, either in terms of terminology, you know, is there some sort of neutral term that we can use? We can talk about action games, but there again, which is a very neutral set of language, but they, that tends to apply only to specific, you know, genres of games, um, which may not all be violent necessarily, you know. Um, you can look at genres like, you know, shooter games, but that's again quite quite narrow. Um, there are lots of games that are violent but are not shooter games. So it's really difficult to, to – and then on the other hand, you, you get like – you tell you like puzzle games and you assume puzzle games generally are nonviolent. But you can find some puzzle games that have, you know, violent themes in them uh, even though you basically – you know, a lot of these like mystery things where there's people getting murdered and you have to solve these puzzles to get to, to find out who the murderer is, for instance, have at least some mild violence in them. Uh, so it's kind of hard to come up with an alternate system. Um, for figuring out what this thing is we want to measure other than this sort of like blanket umbrella of, you know, what we call them, violent games or aggressive games or whatever else, and then sort of lump everything in together. Um, yeah, it's, it's not a very satisfactory system. I don't, th I don't think it's very satisfactory scientifically. Um, I don't think it's very satisfactory conceptually. Um, but it works really well politically, which is why I think people kind of stick to it, uh, because the term is emotionally evocative. It means something for a certain audience of people, um, and it's shorthand, and it's easy to understand, and people think it means something even if it doesn't. Um, you know, So I think there's a lot of resistance to trying to come up with some better system for discussing this sort of issue 
rather than talking about violent video games. But um, but like I said, I mean, trying to come up with that alternate system is going to be very, very tricky. And uh, you probably would end up with an animal that's a lot more complicated uh, than just talking about violent video games. And and again, as we as we mentioned at the beginning of the of the show, people don't like complicated. Um, so I think we're kind of stuck with this. Um, in, in the in the meantime, the best I can do is talk about is, is try to use the term aggressive games rather than violent games. But that's 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 a, a marginal fix at best, I think. So, sure. but it, it it is what it is. For the the studies that you've done, for the the answers that you've gotten from people, uh, what I guess what's on the the really aggressive end of the scale, and what's on the kind of uh, low end of aggression that you would consider an aggressive video game just to give people a, a spectrum of kind of what, what you're dealing with. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you can, so we usually use the ESRB rating system as kind of a estimate of, okay. uh, of games. And, you know, and we've done studies that show like you can take um, blinded raiders, not like literally blinded, obviously, <laughs> but you know, uh, <laughs> but you know, raiders who don't have never played a game, don't know what ESRB rating has been given. Uh, and then ask them to rate the violent content of a game on some sort of standardized scale. And uh, you find that their ratings actually correspond pretty closely to the ESRB rating. So the ESRB ratings seem to be a pretty good index uh, or estimate of, uh, of uh, violent content uh, in games. So we really kind of look at it as a scale going from like, you know, E being, you know, pretty close to not having much, if any, violence through a course, you know, M. And, and, and of course, that's not perfect because we all know that even like M-rated games vary quite a bit. You know, so like Tomb Raider is an M-rated game, or Halo is an M-rated game, and so is Grand Theft Auto V. There, there obviously is a gulf between those, um, you know, those categories, those, those groups of games. But um, but it seems to be the best you know way of trying to estimate the levels of violence uh, in games at present. What you don't want to do is ask people. Uh, to rate the games themselves. Uh, this is like the worst thing pe- researchers do is ask participants, so you played this game, how violent is it? First off, people have no idea how to answer that question. Um, but by asking it in the first place, you've now primed them about what the hypothesis of your study is, and uh, you're going to get rubbish answers from them when you then ask them about aggression. Um, you know, So that's, you know, you you. You know, if if there are budding scholars listening to this podcast, you know, the, if they take nothing away from this, uh, that's the one thing is never, never, never ask your respondents to ask about the violent content of the games that they're playing. That is like the worst thing I see in a lot of studies of violent video games. Noted. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so I guess my, my last question about the research is really – I know this is kind of one drop in in a giant bucket, and your the conclusions that you've come to, the the results that you have, don't they're not the end all be all. It's not the sure. the answer to you know whether violent video games affect violent behavior. But what has your research shown? Yeah, we you know in our studies, whether we have done experiments or these longitudinal studies, you know the results from our lab uh, has been consistent in that we don't find evidence to suggest that violent video game playing again we're using that term uh, you know contributes to aggression either short term or or long term. So this seems to be you know largely in terms of like it being a societal issue there are a lot of things that probably society should be focused in on 
uh, other than this, you know, this this is not like a public health crisis, you know. Now, now that doesn't mean that, like you know every kid is an individual, right? You know, so the, the thing we always try to say is for parents, like parents, you know your kids better than anybody else does. So, um, you know, if, if having your kids play action-oriented games seems to be riling them up, then certainly you should, you know, take whatever course of action if you want to restrict those games, whatever that you feel is best for your family, but. You know, but in general, looking at this as a societal issue, you know, we don't seem to find this evidence that playing these types of games is causing most, you know, kids or or, or put it another way, playing violent video games isn't causing kids to become aggressive any more than watching Full House is, you know, all that sort of stuff. And sometimes I joke about like Full House makes me angry watching it because I just hate that show. So it's, it's not that you know, people don't respond to media. They do. But the question is, is do they respond in ways that we can predict? And there doesn't seem to be anything particularly predictable about sort of like violent content that is related to, you know, sort of like clinically relevant aggression or violent behavior, um, you know, in the real world. Uh, you know, kids sometimes might get riled up if they're losing it again. You, know, you, get, you get frustration effects, stuff like that. But, you know, we know people pl- throw the cards across the room when they lose it. Check- oh, I was going to say checkers. That's terrible. I can't even make games. <laughs> oh, that was awful. But, you know what I mean? Like Old Maid or something like that. Uh, I was going to say, you, you play a weird version of checkers, I, man. I, I want to throw something across the room now because I can't keep my game straight. Um, but, um, you know what I mean? Like, people do respond to stuff. But, it, but what we're interested in is do they respond in ways that are predictable? And the answer seems to be that at least to the extent that violent content in games has an effect on people's emotions – it doesn't seem to be any different from the emotional responses they get from nonviolent games, you know. So you get a, ra- a range of responses, um, but there doesn't seem to be anything particular about violent content that makes people angrier than playing a nonviolent video game and losing at that, um, you know, for instance. Um, so, and that, that seems to be where we're at right now is that there's, you know, not this easy link between violent content and violent outcomes um, in, um, you know, in kids. Interesting. Uh, well, I, my biggest takeaway from that is that somebody needs to make a card-based checkers game or possibly I'm thinking maybe a deck-building <laughs> chess game where you can lay out cards that give your character, you know, your pawns and your pieces buffs versus um, disabilities to the uh, opponent character's pieces. I feel like that could that could be like the next version of uh, chess or checkers. Uh, that somebody kind of awesome. Yeah, actually. Some, somebody <laughs> needs to to make that game. I feel like Somebody's, it would be big. I'm uh, copy right <laughs> now, actually, yes, like, like combine Magic: The Gathering with chess. That would be actually kind of cool. Exactly. Um, you know, in a way, <laughs> I would like to see that. I would play that. I would give that a try. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, <laughs> it's a weird thing to take away from this conversation, but hey, it is. It's yeah. uh, I like it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like Reese's peanut butter cup. Sometimes good things come from accidents, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that does it for the questions about the research. The the last section of the show uh, is is my favorite. It is the in game, and uh, it's it's all more personal questions. So, kind of going back to the type of questions from the beginning of the show, except crazier. Uh, first one's very simple, can be very hard to answer though, and it's who's your favorite video game character? This can be hero, sidekick, villain, whoever. Uh, but it is relegated to video games. Oh, that's cool. That's a great question. I, I, I would think, you know, this, this is also probably my favorite game of all time, but I think uh, 
Uh, Alice from Madness, Alice Madison Returns is probably my favorite character okay. um, of all of all time, and I and I just really really adored that game. I just thought it was so so cool. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm waiting for them. I, I occasionally hear rumors that, that of course that was a second game. You know, there was an earlier game, um, but I'm, I keep hearing rumors there might be a third game. I'm hoping that. Uh, um, that that comes true. Technically, American McGee is a fo- we follow each other on Twitter, so I really should huh. try to. I, I, I'm like he's I'm like so honored, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I really should try to check to see if there's any real progress on the the making a third Alice game. That would be awesome. Definitely. I would actually I, I might actually stop playing Assassin's Creed to play a third <laughs> Alice game. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you mentioned that, and the mascot of the university that you work for is the Hatters. They're not mad, but they are the Hatters. So yeah, although like we the... do, we do borrow some of the Mad Hatter uh, sort of imagery for you okay. know because, because of the Hatters thing. Yeah, I like it. I like yeah. It. <laughs> um, okay, so the next question is a little weirder, um, and this is. And it can't be uh, Alice Madness Returns. Okay, if you could play any game again for the first time, what would you like it to be? So you get that that first experience, uh, that sense of discovery. You don't have to worry about the game aging poorly, so it can be an older game. But yeah. you just get that get that first time experience again. Yeah, that's a great question. Oh, gee, I don't know. Um, there probably are, are few, and they probably are all in the same category. Uh, so I would say, and trying to remember them, I don't even remember the titles of some of them, but there, there was like the Gold Box series of Dungeons and Dragons games that were like, and they really like early IBM like, uh, machines from, but uh, would have been like the late '80s, I think. Uh, they were, they were so cool. Um, again, probably have not aged super well <laughs> at this, at this point, but for their time period, were really amazing. And then there was a game that was sort of related. It was called, uh, I think it was just called Dungeon Master. And it was for, I think it was mostly on these, um, back back in the late 80s, Atari and, and Com- was Commodore uh, both tried to come up with these really cool um, PCs that never went anywhere. Um, so I think the Commodore had the Amiga and then Atari had, uh, what the hell is that thing called? Oh God. S- I think it was the ST or something like that. But, uh, there was this game dungeon master that was again. So see, it's, it's, a lot of these are these like Dungeons and Dragons themed games. I mean, I really like adore Dungeons and Dragons. And, uh, so a lot of these early games that attempted to kind of like bring Dungeons and Dragons onto PC gaming, again, probably by today's standards, like looking at like world of Warcraft or whatever, they would seem very primitive, but um, that experience of being able to play, you know, something that looked sort of like Dungeons and Dragons at any time on my PC um, was uh, w- was amazing. And uh, I I remember that. I think it was Dungeon Master. I, I might have the name a little wrong, but I remember uh, like dumping absurd number of hours onto uh, that game and trying to get through that dungeon. And uh, just you know, ha- having an amazing experience. It was really like th- those those platforms, uh, like the Atari ST, were you know their graphics were way ahead of their time, mm-hmm. even though nobody bought them. You know, but their 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 graphics were amazing. Uh, they were above you know the uh, the Apple or the uh, IBM computers of the, of the time, um, and so the graphics were amazing. They were very very immersive. They were very, very awesome. Um, so I would love to be able to go back and play some of those games again with, with that sense of like, you know, you know, it being a new experience, it being the first time I've ever played a game of that sort. They were just right. fantastic. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, so if uh, Dungeon Master, if you're thinking of like a first person dungeon crawler, 
there was a game called Dungeon Master for the Atari ST and the Amiga. So I think I think you've got that right. That's the one. That's probably the one then, yeah. Cool. All right. So the next question is kind of in some ways the opposite. Uh, what is a blind spot that you have in video games, whether a particular game or a franchise uh, that you've never gotten into, but you would you would like to, but it's just you know that that big big blind spot in your I guess video game history. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the the one series I never got into a whole lot was the Grand Theft Auto series. I mean, I actually I did I did play Grand Theft Auto Five. It's the only game of the series I played through um, entirely, and uh, and I liked it okay. Uh, but it, it wouldn't be among my top games, um, you know, to play. So I haven't really gotten into that. And the other one, which which really makes me feel kind of old, a little bit. I never got into any of the Minecraft games uh, or anything like that, which was like a, a like like a real source of contention between my son and I for a few years there. Yeah, you know, it was just like you know he really really wanted me to play Minecraft with him. And and usually we were you know we we had a history of playing games a lot together. I just really, really, really couldn't get into Minecraft, and uh, so I think I think you know, there's there's that moment right as a, as a child when you realize your parents weren't aren't perfect, and I think for my son that was that moment <laughs> um, when he realized I was not just not a fan of uh, of the Minecraft games. Um, so yeah, so th- those are kind of like the the two series that uh, you know, like I could give or take if another Grand Theft Auto came out, you know, it just wouldn't interest me that much. I probably would play it just you know because. Um, but, um, but I, I wouldn't, I, in fact, I, I only, I only played it because my son got interested, you know, and so, yeah, I, you know, wanted to play it first and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, so if, if he were to lose interest in that genre and I probably wouldn't play another one. Um, so those, those are kind of the areas that, that, uh, um, just, just never really got into and, and, and feel a little bit like culturally I, I I'm deficient because, uh, <laughs> because I, I don't share those games with a lot of other people. I understand. Grand Theft Auto, oddly enough, uh, I, I had an Xbox, uh, you know, when the PlayStation 2 was out and everybody was playing Grand, Grand Theft Auto. I, I had Halo and Fable and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't like playing games where your character, like, has to be kind of evil. Uh, any game where I'm given the option, I'm always, like, at least on the first playthrough, the best of best people. Like I can't be evil. It's terrible. Yeah. And I, I did pick up Grand Theft Auto Five because everybody was ranting and raving about it. And I literally got to the point where once you've played as all three characters, and then it gets to the part where you can start switching between them. Mm. I just I stopped playing because I was like, I hate all of these people. I don't yeah. want to be <laughs> any of them. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we're not so. likable. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree with your assessment of. Uh, well, I have, I have the same thing, and, and you know, and uh, I, I do the same. Even with the, you know, I, I really should stop talking about Assassin's Creed. But even okay. even I play as, I play as Cassandra. <laughs> even the same thing. I think. Oh, uh, perfect. I mean, you're playing as the right one, so that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you get these options like to lie or like to attack people. I'm like, no, it would be so much easier if I did, but I'm not going to. And what's intriguing is I think that there was it wasn't like an academic study, but you know when the Walking Dead game came out back and was it like 2013 or something like that? Uh, the, yeah, was it 2012? Okay, yeah, I knew it was a long time ago. Uh, when that first came out, I know that the company that, um, which I think are, I think they're dead now, but uh, but the company that made the game um, actually kept metrics on like the decisions people mm-hmm. make uh, in the game and sort of like it was again, it wasn't like an academic study, but they did release the you know sort of the report on it and basically said that like people tended to make moral choices in that game 
even when it would have been better for them not to, which was intriguing. You know, like, you know, here, here's a perfectly fictional universe. Talk about, like, moral disengagement. You know, here's, here's a perfectly fictional universe. There really are no consequences to any of your actions, you know, in terms of, like, real human beings being hurt or whatever. Uh, and, you know, there were these scenarios where you, you clearly benefited from making a less moral choice, but a lot of players wouldn't do it. They actually would take the harder path because it was the more moral choice, even in a fictional universe. And that was in – I don't remember the – I think I see, my vague memory is that it was, like, 90% of the time if – if, if given a choice between a more practical, immoral choice and a less practical, moral choice, that the players would choose the moral choice. Again, I mean that I might be inventing that statistic off, up, you know, off the top of my head, but um, but essentially, the majority of the time, you know, people did make these kind of moral choices, which is intriguing because you know, you know the older adults kind of think of like video game playing as a cesspool of immorality, um, you know, but in reality, uh, it seems like people generally tend to prefer to take make moral choices even when there's no real world reason why they should sure well i think i think one of the interesting things about the walking dead games is that especially in the first one you have the the character of clementine there who Mm -hmm. kind of serves as your moral barometer so in a game like the the star wars games you know you've got the the dark side and the light side and that moves as you you make decisions and it's this very arbitrary thing but you kind of have to stick to one side or the other if you want to get certain powers versus other ones Mm-hmm. Um, but with The Walking Dead, it, it kind of has this perfect, like, hidden moral system, because I I think it was in the second game, uh, you have the option, you, you meet cannibals, and at the, towards the end of it, you have the option to stab one of them with a pitchfork. Yeah. Um, and when I was playing the game, it's like, okay, this is the apocalypse, I'm gonna do what it takes to survive, and I stabbed this guy with a pitchfork. But mm-hmm. then the little girl, Clementine, who's like nine, it reveals that she saw me do that. And she's horrified by the fact that I just stabbed a guy with a pitchfork. Right. Which, you know, yeah, be hard. That's something to be horrified at. Um, right. And so, like, I couldn't make any remotely evil decisions after that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because, like, you never know when she's going to see something and how it might affect this, you know, fake little person that I'm charged with taking care of uh so it's i I don't know it's it's kind of like uh in the research when i guess when you realize uh you know what what study you're a part of it it completely changes what your answers are like now that you realize you know clementine can be affected by what you're doing like you have to be on your best behavior at all times yeah (laughs) Um, yeah so yeah, there have been other games that have done that too. They're kind of like the ending changes in various ways depending upon the moral uh, issues that uh, you uh, you take in the game. And I'm thinking of that. And of course, now I can't remember the name of the game, which is really terrible because it's a really popular game. And I played all three of them. Um, I don't remember name the remember the games that are take place underwater with the little sisters. And oh, the, Bioshock. Bioshock. Thank you. My God, I was just having an Alzheimer's moment. I couldn't think of that. But, but you know, there's another example in there where we're kind of like dealing with the defeated little sisters. Like, how do you how do you handle them? How do you like? I just remember like taking the energy out of them and that kind of stuff. And you can, you know, essentially deplete them entirely or leave them to run away as like you know uh, restored little girls. And again, you get more power by taking the less moral choice. And the, but uh, and and I think you know playing the first Bioshock, I think you didn't even necessarily know that it had that you know an impact on the actual ending of the game. 
um, the kinds of like moral choices you made, um, you know, in doing that. So it's kind of fascinating the way that, you know, some games do build this kind of like morale. Like I said, these kind of like hidden morality systems uh, into the game and they actually do affect the outcome, uh, you know, particularly if you're not wary mm -hmm. <laughs> about, about worrying about it. Absolutely. Um, so now on to a very different question. What is a good trend in video games that you've seen that you would like to see more of? Uh, this can really be anything. It can be just something that you saw one video game did well and you wish other video games picked up that mechanic or just, you know, maybe it's just, you know, more games need to be in ancient Greece, whatever the case may be. <laughs> more games should be in ancient Greece. Um, no, no. I, I think one of the, the, the great trends, actually, um, that has been happening over the last five to ten years in particular has been – um, a, a lot more availability of games with lead female characters um, and, and female characters presented in much more positive ways. So uh, I think that, you know, it was one thing that kind of emerged in sort of like criticism of games, you know, going back maybe five or ten years that, that, that had some validity to them, uh, to it. Uh, you know, whether there was any kind of causal effects or not, I'm not so sure. But, you know, just in the sense of, um, you know, the ability to to play as Cassandra or to play as Alice and Alice Man Returns or Ellie in The Last of Us or things like that. There's been, you know, a, 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 a much wider variety of games that are good games um, that have um, lead female characters and are presented as like human beings um, or, you know, other critters, <laughs> depending on what they're supposed to be, um, that uh, has been really, really good. And, and I think that's, you know, a real positive development um, for, for the field. And, and I think that is something that the game industry should be recognized uh, for, for doing. I think there was a lot of call for that. A lot of gamers were asking for this. And it looks like the industry, you know, listened. Um, they might not always get as much credit for it as they should, but I think that is a real positive development. And, and again, I would like to, uh, you know, see, see more of that moving forward. Definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I just picked up the game control, uh, from remedy and, okay. uh, in that game you, you play as a, a female character and that's, it's the first game from remedy where you, you play as a, as a lady and it just the first like five minutes, I, it was weird. But not only was I glad that, you know, there's not just another uh, white dude as the, the main protagonist, but so many games that have female protagonists, there's this weird fixation on their butt because, yeah. you know, it's third person, <laughs> it's behind them. And, yeah. like, I've, I've only played it for about an hour, but the camera's never lingered on her butt. And it's just like, wow. I really appreciate this. <laughs> it's like the Zack Snyder effect, right? You right. Know, I, you know, it's like yeah, Wonder Woman. Like the Wonder Woman movie was, was great. And then what the hell was it? Justice League, Zack Snyder. Like, you know, you see these lingering shots on Wonder Woman's, you know, butt. It's like, oh, come on. You know, right. it's just, you know. Uh, it's like she has more qualities than that, man. Come yeah. on. <laughs> um, You're ruining Wonder Woman just... for it. Stop it. <laughs> but it, it's just weird when, like, the absence of something can just – speak so loudly yeah. um uh, obviously the, the the game's got a lot more going for it but i was just that was that was honestly the first thing that i was just like wow like just this this is great this is refreshing i, I yeah. like this absolutely yeah yeah um so flipping the coin uh what is a bad trope in video games that you wish would uh be lessened or just go away entirely oh that's a that's a great question um 
Let me think about that one. I don't know if I have one that's like sitting on the top of my head uh, necessarily. I'm trying to think. What am, what am I really irritated about in some games? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess like you said, always like in, in shooter games, you kind of have that phenomenon of, of like the brown-haired white dude always being the protagonist. You know, it's not that we can't have games like that, of course, but uh, you know, it'd be kind of good to mix things up a little bit. And again, I think I think the game industry is getting a little bit better. Um, you know, about um, some of that. I, I think with some of the shooter games, the storylines can tend to get kind of convoluted, which in fairness, you're talking about like 30 to 40 hour games and it's kind of, you know, it's not like a two hour movie. Um, but uh, I remember like playing some of like the Call of Duty games, the mod- particularly the Modern Warfare games and kind of going like, what the hell's happening at this point? Who, who's side am I on? I mean, uh, and um, so I think in some cases, you know, some of the, you know, I, I do appreciate what a lot of the developers are trying to do, you know, in terms of having complex stories that are, you know, engrossing and stuff like that. But, uh, but I think sometimes they could keep them a little bit more coherent. And that, and that might just be a challenge. Um, for something that is over a 30 to 40 hour experience, I'm sure it is kind of challenging to keep that like, you know, with the crispness of a two, two and a half hour movie, Sure, uh, you know, and that can be kind of difficult to do. But there, there are some times where I'm like, yeah, I, at this point, I don't even know what's going on. I'm just going to shoot things. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I, you know, and I, I think that can be kind of a trick again when, when some of the games like, um, you know, uh, head shift uh, a little bit. You know, you're playing with one character for a little while, another character for a little while. And uh, and that can also kind of make the narrative, at least for us old guys, you know, who are like pre-Alzheimer's, um, you know, <laughs> maybe may a little bit tricky uh, to follow. So I think I, I would like to see like, you know, in some, and again, it's not all games, but, you know, particularly with the shooter genre, uh, crisper narratives uh, would be nice. Like, you know, I kind of compare like, again, like a lot of the, modern warfare games to like the last of us the last of us seemed to manage to keep a really crisp narrative through a 30 hour experience you know uh even though it did head shift you know you did right. you know started playing as ellie for a little while um but um but it'd be good to, to kind of see if some of the more military games could try to keep a bit more of a coherent narrative um you know through some of that and then the other thing too is that you know there's some games that tend to have like protracted cuts cut scenes or parts of the game where you can't really do much other than sort of like stumble around and follow the narrative. I can't, I, I know I played a few games like that recently. I mean, I can't think of an example necessarily on the top of my head, but uh, where I'm like, you know, it's the introduction. I'm 10 minutes in the game and I haven't had fun yet because I'm, you know, tr- trying to follow your story. And I, and again, I appreciate the art artist artistry of what the person is doing, but um, there may be, you know, if, if I'm coming to a shooter game, I do want to shoot things. And if I'm 10 minutes into the, game already and i haven't shot anything then i'm kind of like okay yeah i get i get you're sort of setting up the narrative a little bit here but uh you know let, let's get into it sure. <laughs> you know a little bit so those are probably a couple of things but they're not big deal neither, neither of those are like 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 i'm staying up nights worrying about this um, <laughs> or anything but um I, I think as far as plots go i think a lot of video games uh focus too heavy on the idea of plot versus uh character whereas something mm. like the last of us Honestly, there's not a whole lot of plot. Like the, yeah. you have these kind of smaller sections of story for each of the seasons that you go through. But really, I mean, the plot is Joel needs to get Ellie to the Firefly camp. Right. Like that's that's it. It's very simple. Yeah. Um. It's it's really about the character relationships, how those evolve, and they're kind of in these you know almost like television episodes yeah. in a way, uh, where the the idea of the traditional like three hour or three hour three act. Uh, story structure 
especially for a longer game, just does not really work. work uh, yeah. And I think a lot of people also confuse lots of twists and turns for um, for good like story. Yeah. And that that can just be confusing, like you were saying. You don't know what's going on. So the fact that there's another twist, you're just like, well, I don't, I don't remember what that was about anyway. So why should I care? Yeah, I, I think you hit it on the head. I mean, I think that's exactly it. Like that's that's probably my my beef, if you will, with the you know some of the modern warfare games. Not, I mean, I still play them. Don't get me wrong, but sure. uh, you know that uh, there is this kind of head shifting, which is kind of hard to get into the characters as a consequence of uh, of some of that. And there are these like complicated storylines about like you know with with all these twists, you know, about these terrorist organizations and whatever else, or the Russians are always somehow involved. Um, but, uh, but then he hands like, yeah, mostly I'm just kind of shooting stuff. I actually don't really care about the character I'm playing. You know, it's just, that's just like the, the avatar through which I'm shooting, you know, the pop-ups uh, or whatever. So it kind of doesn't work. Um, whereas like I said, I think maybe a simpler storyline, but, but with more characterization, um, which granted, you know, maybe works more in a post-apolitic game like the last of us better than it does in modern warfare. But um, you know, but 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 yeah, I mean, I found the, the Last of Us to be a much more engrossing experience, and I cared about the characters, you know, um, in that game, um, which I don't always get from the uh, you know some of the military shooters. Uh, at least some of the more the ones that are focused on more modern warfare in particular seem to be harder to because everybody knows World War Two, so World War Two is kind of a um, you know an easy narrative to follow. I suppose you have a little bit of a heads up on that one, but uh, which also brings me to my wish list. I would really love to see a shooter game based on World War One. That's what I'd like. That's that's my uh, – so if any developers are listening, let's, let's get a uh, Call of Duty World War One game. <laughs> did, did you play Battlefield 1? <laughs> I did not. I've never played the Battlefield series. Uh, that's actually probably another among my uh, uh, blind spots as well. <laughs> Battle, Battlefield 1 is the only Battlefield game that I have. I, I picked it up because they had the um, – you could play it for like 10 hours before it came out or something like that, which okay. of the story you could only play like 30 minutes. Yeah, uh, it was basically ten hours of multiplayer, uh, but it's instead of being one long campaign, it's like these. It's, I think it's like five or six, like basically one hour long campaigns where you're in one character, and a lot of the times it's very simple. It's just like you have to get a message from where you are to this village over there, and it, yeah. it's really just kind of about you. Uh, the the only one that I played was the one that you're in a tank at the very beginning, yeah. and you're trying to get the message uh, for. Uh, like an artillery strike or something like that. Okay. And so you've got these characters that you kind of get to know in this just very short amount of time. But uh, I think it worked really well. Of course, I got it, and then I haven't played any of the other ones, so I yeah. don't know if the rest of it lives up to it. Uh, yeah. But at least that one uh, I, I thought was was really great. Gotcha. Um, there but, actually was some obscure World War One shooter that was released like in the early 2000s. And I can, again, I can't remember the name of it, but I remember playing it. Uh, probably about like 2002, 2003, somewhere around there, it was released, and uh, it was good. I don't, you know, I don't remember which which developer produced it or the name of the game, but uh, it was a World War One shooter, and it's actually really, really good. You know, but yeah, you don't see too many developers touch World War One yeah. um, for some reason. I think it, I think it has to do with technology and like making it fun. Uh, yeah, most of it was people sitting in trenches with bolt action rifles, which, you know, is. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's the. I imagine it's probably the trench part of it is what is difficult. About, yeah, you're sp- spending thirty hours sitting in a trench shooting across the people you, know, you can't see. Probably yeah, it doesn't make for particularly exciting gameplay, but uh, uh, eh, it just takes a little creativity to find a way around it. I think. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, so next question, second to last question. Um, you are a professor. You're a doctor. You're doing research. Very cool. 
But if there was any other profession in the entire world that you would like to give a shot, what would you like to do? Oh, that's probably tons. <laughs> so the grass is always greener. <laughs> you know, I tell you. No, no I, I got it pretty good. I, I can't complain too much. I mean, uh, you know, like, like anything, any job has its moments of frustration and stuff. But, uh, you know, the academics, you know, the coal miners of the world don't need to shed any tears for me. You know, is, is, the, is the reality of it. It's a pretty good job. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the one thing I always kind of lament is, you know, the other path I could have taken probably would have been something more creative you know what i mean and you know so like you know i always wanted to be like a rock star you know it was always kind of a thing okay. you know so uh becoming like the next guitarist for pink floyd you know so they ought to have these bands that like when the old members retire or 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 die um that the band should be able to just hire somebody new you know to kind of like keep going or whatever and i understand this is not the way things work you know like a whole new fleetwood mac you know what I mean? You know, with uh, everybody in their 20s again. Uh, but um, th th probably your listeners are going to rebel at me for saying anything as sacrilegious as that. But, um, but you know, but getting involved with something like, you know, you know I, I like writing fiction. You know, so if I could actually get a novel to sell, you know, uh, anything remotely near like Stephen King levels, then I would give up uh, being an academic tomorrow. Uh, so, um, you know, there's, there's a part of me that, you know, kind of thinks, oh, I should have gone into video game design or whatever. But then I hear about like the crunch, you know, that a lot of developers go through and I'm like, oh yeah, that, that, that doesn't sound good at all. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be so cool to like be able to put my name on something artistic and, you know, you know, ha have that kind of influence on, um, on people. So you know, being an academic is definitely the plan B, but it's actually kind of a cool plan B. I mean, I, I can't really um, complain about it. I, ha I get to have some influence, you know, on people's thoughts about important or at least semi-important topics like video games. And uh, I get to play video games at work, which is kind of cool. Uh, and nobody can tell me that I can't. Um, you know, we get summers off, you know, and a pretty good break for Christmas and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's um, you know, like I said, it's not a bad gig. Um uh, you know, overall. So things probably worked out the way they should have, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely have my moments where I could, I thought, like, Oh, if I could have been an astronaut, how cool, cool would that be? You know, I just saw Ad Astro over the weekend. Um, so, um, so, you know, I think I'm pretty happy with how things turned out pretty content, but, uh, you know, um, if, if people really want to support my life dream, just look for me on Amazon and buy my novel. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> then life will be done. I'll be ready to die at that point. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> All right. And the, uh, the final question, weirdest one. At the end of your life, you get to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom because you find out that the afterlife is actually where Mario comes from. Uh, Toad is there, and he is in St. Peter's role, so he's the one that's letting people in through the um, – I don't know if it's a mushroom gate or, or how the gate, what the gate is made up of, but it, it, maybe it's just pipes. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but uh, he – he says something to you before he lets you in. What would you like Toad to say? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, it's time to level up, I guess. I don't know. Probably be something like that. <laughs> um, well, first off, I think I'd be glad that like this, you know, this anything other than oblivion. That'd be uh, that's good news to start with. But uh, no, I mean, I suppose if, if you know, if I wanted to be judged for anything, which I think is probably what you're really asking. Um, you know, I mean, we're obviously all human and over the course of, you know, if I live to be 80, you know, we all will have done things that we wish we had not done and 
and and not done things we wish we had done. Um, you know, so you know, I want to be as modest as possible about this, but you know, I I think that if you know the judge, whoever it is in the Mushroom Kingdom, um, you know, said that at very least, you know, I always tried to tell the truth insofar as how the data on these types of questions came out um, and did my best for that, then I think I, I would be satisfied with that, that I will have sort of met a prime life goal in the sense of being empirically focused rather than sort of emotionally, um, you know, or following a moral or social agenda, you know, being data focused, you know, that, 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 that was as consistent as anyone human can be to a quest for sort of a platonic truth, uh, in the types of questions that I tried to answer. I think that's what I would love to hear that I somehow succeeded, you know, passing grade at very least, <laughs> um, at that, uh, would be fantastic. I think that'd be good. Excellent. I'd also have to level up. <laughs> Everybody wants to level up, so that's yep, exactly. that's great. You told the truth, and you get to assign a new ability point. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, Chris, that does it for the end game and uh, the interview as a whole. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and chatting about your research on video games and, uh, or I guess, research on violence and uh, aggression in video games, and just a whole lot more uh that we discussed over the last almost hour and a half now oh god okay yeah. we need to get done you've got other things to do uh <laughs> but thank you so much and uh if you could um if you could send us out by letting people know where they can find you on twitter or what your book is called what, whatever you want to plug uh here's your opportunity sure yeah probably the easiest way to find out stuff about me is at my webpage actually which is uh just my name uh, ChristopherJFerguson.com. Uh, so there are links there to, you know, I, I have a, like I said, I have a novel, a mystery novel set in Renaissance Florence, Suicide Kings. Uh, I have a book on video games, Moral Combat, Why the War on Violent Video Games uh, is Wrong. And then I have a forthcoming book, How Madness Shaped History, which is pretty much just what it says on the cover. Um, and uh, so those are some options there. And I have some, some other little short stories that have been published in various sources and, of course, all my academic work. And uh, on Twitter, it's just CJFerguson1111. Um, so if you want to follow me there, uh, I usually just gripe about science uh, for the most part. Uh, but, uh, yeah, cool. So, yeah, I'm happy to uh, have people reach out. Uh, people want to ask me questions. I have my email, CJFergus at Stetson.edu, and look forward to chatting with people. Awesome. Well, thank you once again, and best of luck as you continue your research, continue to shape the minds of young adults at Stetson University, and uh, as you, you finish your, your next upcoming book. Cool. So it was great chatting with you, and uh, hopefully we can do this again, I, I guess at some point in the future, when you've got a book or more research to talk about, or whatever the case may be. That would be awesome. Well, it's been great being on today, and uh, had a lot of fun. Mm -hmm.